Well, good morning, everybody. How are you doing? How was your summer? Too fast? Trust me when I tell you, the older you get, the faster it goes. Speeding by for me. Well, I'm glad you're all here, though, but uh, let's get started, shall we? Uh, I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1, New Testament John chapter 1. And uh, today we are indeed starting a series in which we're looking at various people's encounters with Jesus, um, encounters that uh, are recorded by the Apostle John in his biography on Jesus. Now, back when my wife Marge and I lived in New Jersey, um, we had some friends who were always bumping into celebrities all the time. You know, they'd meet this famous person over here, they'd meet so-and-so over there, they'd get introduced to him, to her. It was uncanny. And they'd come and they'd tell us these stories, and whenever they did, we were envious because we never encountered famous people. It just didn't happen to us. So we started pretending. Uh, it's been going on for quite some time. Uh, for example, a while back we saw Elvis at a putt-putt golf course in eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, two weeks ago in Seattle, Margie saw John Lennon reading a book outside the Space Needle. Uh, and just so you know, Elvis and John look pretty good, considering. Um, the other day, Jack Nicholson was delivering mail in my neighborhood. Go figure. And uh, one time I drove by the Queen of England walking down a street in North Jersey. Apparently she was on holiday in Parsippany. Uh, I mean, see, this is what we do. I mean, here's a picture. I have this picture in my office. <laughs> this is framed in my office on my windowsill. Uh, I, know it, I know that may seem a little weird, and it probably is, but it's fun. And uh, we do it because we just never encounter, you know, truly prominent and influential people. And frankly, I'm not even sure what I would do or say if I did encounter someone who was sort of um, insanely famous. Well, I got thinking about this a few months ago I was, as I was reading through John's gospel, and um, I guess it's because he, he, he records how men, women, and children from all walks of life, from all social strata, uh, had these encounters with Jesus. And um, even as Jesus' popula popularity and fame grew throughout Israel, you know, reaching celebrity status, he was always willing to engage with people, always willing to engage. In his book titled Encountering Encounters with Jesus, theologian Gary Burge writes, occasionally these people were, were well-placed leaders, tax collectors, or military officials. In other cases, Jesus met people with profound, debilitating health needs, and he stopped to see what could be done. Burge points out how records of famous teachers from the ancient world rarely offer us such accounts. Rare is the leader who was known for his engagement with the needy. Rarer still is the detailed narrative of the rabbi or sage who invested in the personal troubles of the poor. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. And here's the deal. As unique as each of these encounters were, the one thing that, that was consistent, uh, consistently true uh, with all of them uh, is namely that those who had these intentional or even unintentional uh, interactions with Jesus their lives were seriously impacted, which is why we're calling this study Collision. So that said, I'd like to get us started by looking at um, an encounter Jesus had early on in his ministry with a skeptic. And uh, the story is recorded here at the end of John chapter 1. For the sake of context, Jesus has just invited John, Andrew, and Peter to follow after him, to be disciples. And in verse 43, we're told this. Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. 
Philip found Nathanael and told him, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, uh, for me, this encounter is particularly fascinating and it's one that I feel is especially relevant to, to those of us living in 21st century Western culture because for some people today, uh, the tendency is to think uh, back of, of men and women in the ancient world as being you know, a, sort of a bunch of blunt-minded, ignorant, unsophisticated individuals who were predisposed to accept anything. You know, to just accept any claim, any supernatural story that came along. Author C.S., author and thinker C.S. Lewis once referred to this as chronological snobbery. Uh, it's the idea that, you know, we modern people, we modern people are, are, are so much more advanced and uh, sophisticated in our thinking while the ancients were primitively naive and ready to believe whatever. But that's just not true. On the contrary, many in Israel, and certainly many people within Greco-Roman society, were well-educated. They were bright, they were intelligent men and women who were keen observers of our world and of human uh, experience. And so when it, when it came to Jesus and his radical claims, many were skeptical. And Nathaniel is a prime example. And understand, you know, when I call him a skeptic, I'm not using that word in a negative sense, per se. Because by definition, a skeptic is simply a person who is inclined to question or to doubt accepted opinions. In fact, our word skeptic uh, comes from the ancient Greek term skeptikos, meaning to observe and to thoughtfully reflect on something, which is not a bad thing, right? Over the years, uh, as a pastor, I've talked to a lot of people who, when it comes to God, when it comes to Jesus, comes to Christianity, uh, they they label themselves skeptics. But what I've found is that there, there are a lot of different kinds of skeptics. You know, from my experience and what I've seen, there are, for example, passive skeptics, individuals who use this label, but if the truth be told, they, they're really not asking questions or reflecting on anything of spiritual substance, not really. On the other hand, there are active skeptics, men and women who, in the truest sense, are questioning, they're thinking, they're, they're researching, they're reflecting, and they remain open-minded in hopes of finding truth. Then there are angry skeptics, those who, for whatever reason, when it comes to God or spiritual matters, just get, just get incensed, you know? In some cases, ironically, these folks are more interested in talking about religion than you might be. But instead of accepting the fact that, that other people believe something they don't, they, they, they just go after people condescendingly, viciously. They ask questions not, to, not out of curiosity, but as a means of personal attack. And to be honest about it, there are some in the church who operate this way as well to those outside the church. 
Sadly, that's true. Certainly not healthy, certainly not helpful. There are also cynical skeptics, um, philosophers and thinkers, the likes of Friedrich Nietzsche, Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, more recently Michael Foucault, a French philosopher, people who view Christianity and really religion in general uh, as nothing more than a big power play. It's just a way to gain control over other people. And, you know, I'll tell you what, I'm nowhere near as bright as those guys. I'm not even in their league whatsoever. Um, But this is kind of how I saw Christianity. I thought it was just a bunch of religious, self-righteous people wanting to dictate things to me. Just dump a bunch of rules and regulations on my life. For me, it was all about their do's and don'ts, their wills and won'ts. They just wanted to control me. Here's the point. Skepticism can be very nuanced, you know, experienced in a lot of different ways. Now, most of us in the room, I'm assuming, like me, have kind of moved beyond skepticism uh, to belief in Jesus. But if you haven't, I'm just wondering, how would you see yourself? I mean, what kind of skeptic are you? Are you passive, angry, cynical? Are you actively pursuing thinking you know, and observing and thinking in hopes of finding truth? And what about Nathaniel? What kind of skeptic was he? Well, based on John's report, I would say he was a contemptuous one. What do I mean? Well, let me put it this way. It seems that when, when it came to Jesus, Nathaniel's problem was pride and arrogance. Think about it. Philip, who just accepted Jesus' invitation to follow, follow him, he, he runs to find his friend, and he says, Nate, you gotta, you got to hear this. We've, we've found the one Moses wrote about in the law, the one all the prophets were talking about and writing about and predicting. We've found him. We've found the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, Jesus of Nazareth. How does Nate respond to that? Does he immediately say, oh, great, that's wonderful? No. He expresses his skepticism. Now, understand As a good religious Jewish person, Nathanael would have believed in a coming Messiah. Like most everyone else in Israel, uh, he knew what Moses and the prophets said, and surely, like everybody else in Israel, he was hoping for, praying for, waiting for, looking for the divine Savior to arrive. But just because someone comes along claiming to be him, and just because his buddy Philip believed it to be true, that wasn't enough for Nathanael. He was very left-brained, you know, he he was analytical, he asked questions, he had doubts, and he he verbalizes them. He just, he verbalizes them, which authenticates the story to me, because he doesn't automatically and naively just buy into it. He was smarter than that. He was a skeptic. However, his skepticism was dripping with arrogance. And as the old saying goes, arrogance breeds contempt. He says, Nazareth, (laughs) can anything good come from there? Now, why would he say that? Some of it was a cultural issue. Some of it was a human issue. Culturally speaking, in first century Israel, many people who lived in the city of Jerusalem, uh, they looked down their noses on those who lived out in the burbs, out in the boonies of Galilee, right? And how do most people who are looked down on deal with that? They turn and find others that they can look down on. And so the people out in Galilee who lived in towns like Cana, where Nathaniel was from, they looked down their noses with disdain 
on those who lived in even smaller, more remote villages like Nazareth, viewing the people there as just poor, ignorant, you know, slobs, just rubes, hicks. Hence, how could anything good come from there, let alone Messiah? See, Nathaniel's problem wasn't skepticism. Skepticism isn't a sin. His problem was pride, which is a sin. And at best, he was a social, intellectual snob, at worst, an intolerant bigot. Interestingly enough, the people of Rome, the people of Rome, they looked down their noses with contempt on all the Jews in Palestine. No matter where they were from, the city, Galilee, didn't matter. They looked down on everybody there, which tells me something. It tells me that this kind of arrogance, the kind that holds in contempt those who are different, resulting in attitudes and acts of discrimination, prejudice, bigotry, and racism, it wasn't just a Nathaniel problem. It wasn't just a Jewish problem. It wasn't just a Roman problem. It wasn't just a cultural problem. It wasn't just a first century problem. It was and remains to this moment a human problem. And it flows out of the ugly, shadowy side of our sinful humanity. And it's wrong. And it's an affront to the image of God and every living person. And all that to say is Nathaniel, you know, like each of us, you know, he was a, he was a sinfully broken human being in need of forgiveness, in need of God's grace, in need of a savior, in need of redemption. And uh, on some level, he recognized that because despite his contemptuous skepticism, when his friend Philip says, hey, come with me, come and see this Jesus, how, how does... How does Nathaniel respond? Well, he goes, right? I'm sure he goes with the expectations that weren't very high, but he goes. He was willing to investigate. So they take off, and Philip leads him to Jesus, and as Jesus sees them approaching, as they get close, he says this about Nathaniel. He says, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Translation. Here comes a good, honest, outspoken religious guy. Now, others who knew Nathaniel may have described him differently. Maybe some people thought he was an obnoxious, judgmental, self-righteous blowhard. I don't know. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't see him that way, he doesn't call him that, indicating that even though Jesus can see through all of our facades, even though he knows each of us to our very sinful core, nonetheless, he leads with gentleness and grace. And that's what he does with Nathaniel. He says, here's a good, religious, honest man. And when Nathaniel hears that, he says, what? We've never met. How do you know me so well? Apparently, he agreed with the assessment. You know? <laughs> uh, but the extent to which Jesus knew him seemed to shake him up a little bit. Jesus answers, well, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree, you know, before Philip talked to you. Side note. Here's another indication this is an eyewitness account because we're never told what Nathaniel was doing under the tree or why it was significant. We're never told. And, and um, we're just left hanging. When writing fiction, you don't do this kind of thing. You don't offer unnecessary details because it doesn't add to the story. It doesn't move the plot forward. It just distracts and irritates the reader. But John wasn't writing fiction, you see. He was recording an actual event between two people. And Jesus says to him, yeah, man, I saw you while you were under that fig tree. Again, no one knows what he was doing there. But you want to hear a theory? I'm going to tell you anyway, but uh, 
don't really have a choice. Uh, in ancient Palestine, the shade of a fig tree uh, was a common place for people to go and pray, especially young rabbinical students, which Nathaniel may have been. And if he was, then when Philip found him there, chances are good he was in prayer, which was maybe why he was a little more irritated. And in the first century, rabbis taught their students, he who, when he prays, does not pray for the coming of the Messiah, has not prayed at all. Meaning, if Nathaniel was in prayer under that fig tree, it's very possible he was asking God to send Messiah. Praying for the Messiah to come, which is perhaps why Jesus referred to him as a, as a true Israelite and revealed how he saw Nathaniel under the tree, i.e. he knew exactly what he was doing. And Nathaniel immediately puts two and two together and realizes, you know, the only person who could have known what I was doing, the only person who could have heard that private prayer from Messiah was the Messiah himself. Now again, this is purely conjecture, but I tell you what, man, at this moment in their encounter, something happens. Something spiritually momentous occurs because it was all so private, because it was all so significant, so astounding to Nathaniel that Jesus knew all this, it just kind of demolishes his contemptuous skepticism and with a sudden burst of, of, of and an expression of faith, he declares, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. I believe. I don't know how you find it, but I find Jesus' reaction here quite fascinating because he doesn't, he doesn't condone Nathaniel for his face. He doesn't say, oh, great, congratulations. Neither does he chastise him for his skepticism because Jesus isn't against people thinking. In fact, in a way, Jesus reacts by encouraging him to think a little bit more. He says to him, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. Consider this. You'll see greater things than that, Nathaniel. And then Jesus makes an amazing promise. He adds, truly I tell you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, that statement may seem a little out of place to us, a little odd even, a little strange, but it wasn't for Nathaniel. Because as a Jewish man, he would have recognized that what Jesus was doing. He was quoting from the Old Testament. He was, uh, this was a direct reference to Genesis 28, a place where Jacob, the son of Isaac, had this dream. And in the dream, he saw this ladder stretching uh, all the way up from, from, um, uh, from earth to heaven, stretching the whole distance, and there were these angels going up and down, ascending and descending on this ladder, signifying that the ladder led directly into God's presence. But of course, after Jacob's dream, uh, once it was over, the ladder was gone, and you know who's ever going to see that again? Well, Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, listen, man, if you're going to believe in me, you need, all, you need to know it all. You need to know that I am the link between heaven and earth. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on not some ladder, but on the Son of Man. Translation, he's saying to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, through me, you and everyone and anyone who believes can come right into the presence of God and even more than that, the presence of God will come flowing directly into you. So he's saying, follow me. You, you're going to see and experience some exciting and wonderful things, Nathaniel. And upon 
getting that information and hearing that promise, what was Nathaniel's ultimate decision here? The text doesn't say, does it? doesn't tell us. However, we know he became a committed follower of Jesus because later on in this biography, over in chapter 21, John lists Nathaniel as being one, of, one in a group of followers that Jesus appeared to on the shore of the Sea of Galilee post-resurrection. John writes, uh, when Jesus appeared again to his disciples, it happened this way. He says, Peter was there, Thomas was there, and so was Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee. And so based on this, we know Nathaniel definitely put his skepticism aside and became a disciple of Jesus. And we also are clued into this because uh, when he expressed his belief in Jesus, he referred to him as what? As rabbi, Right? And at the time, when a person committed to, to be a disciple of a rabbi, it meant becoming a full-time student. Not just a, a one-hour-a-week deal. Not even a, a five-day-a-week, seven-to-two deal. Not even a 16-credit-hour deal. This was, it was a full-time deal. Being a disciple at the time meant following your rabbi 24-7. At that point, when you make that commitment, your life, your priorities, your time, your resources, your commitments were all oriented around your teacher in order to not merely know what the teacher knows, but to obey and become just like the teacher. Now, I realize in our context today, especially we in the church, we love to talk about faith in Jesus and, and discipleship, right? But, but for many of us, when the words commitment and uh, obedience get linked with discipleship, when those things get mentioned, a lot of us get very nervous. And some of us are thinking to ourselves, man, I believe in Jesus, but, you know, this followership, discipleship, rabbi deal, I don't, I don't know. Because what if Jesus, I say I follow him, what if he asked me to do something I really don't want to do? Well, I'm here to tell you he will ask you to do something you don't want to do. Of course he will. Of course he will. You know, the only relationship left in our culture that is similar to the ancient disciple-rabbi relationship is that of an athlete to a coach. I mean, imagine the head football coach of a Division I university, well-known program, goes to a high school to sign a high school athlete, a player to a full-ride football scholarship. And just as the player is sitting at the table about to sign his letter of intent, he looks up to the coach and he says, you know, coach, I really want to be part of your program. I really do. But I don't want you to tell me things that I want to hear. And I don't, I don't want to do anything that's really too hard, you know, because I'm afraid you're going to do that. I'm afraid you're going to ask me to do stuff that are going to, that's going to make me uncomfortable and I'm not going to like. And so the coach says to him, do you want to be a great football player? If so, then of course I'm going to tell you some things you're not going to want to hear. And of course I'm going to push you. I'm going to ask you to do some things that are really hard, that are uncomfortable, things you're not going to like, things you're going to have questions about. But I'm the coach. I know what I'm doing. And if you make the commitment and you give yourself to me, I will make you into someone special, someone great. Will you trust me? See, the decision every athlete has to make is whether or not they're going to believe in and trust their coach. Likewise, a disciple of a rabbi, to be a follower of Jesus requires the decision to, to commit fully and trust him and follow him and do what he says. 
Is that a decision that you have made? Honestly, is that a decision you've made? Obviously, Nathaniel made it. But I also want you to notice that Nathaniel doesn't just refer to Jesus as rabbi, but he refers to him also as what? God and king. Which further explains to me his ongoing loyalty and obedience. Because in some ways, I suppose it's easy to dismiss the instructions of a coach or the words of an average rabbi, but how can one dismiss deity? How can one dismiss one's God and king? How can you do that? Think think about this for a second. How do you relate to God personally? How do you relate to God? And be honest about it. The only way that makes sense to me in terms of relating to God is to surrender oneself completely to him. Because if God is who we we all say he is, eternal, omniscient, uh, almighty creator and king of the universe... If that's true, how can we ignore or dismiss him? That doesn't make any sense to do that. I mean, do you invite that kind of being into your life to be your student, to be your assistant, to be your toady? Is that even plausible? When you hear God's commands for your life because he knows what's best for you, do you reply, no thanks, nah, I don't think so. When he says, be generous with your money, do you say, not interested? When he says, forgive those who hurt you, do you say, no way, am I doing that? When he says, serve others faithfully, do you say, I got no time, not doing it? When he says, love your neighbor and your enemy, do you say, that's not happening? I mean, are you up front with him about all this? Do you say, listen, Lord, ah." I don't want to have to deal with you every day. You know, once a week is enough. Because I don't really want you interrupting my life all the time. I don't, I don't want you telling me what to do. I don't want you saying things I don't want to hear. Hard things. I'm not interested in that. However, I'll tell you this. When I need you, I want you to be there for me. And when I have a problem, I want you to solve it. And whenever I pray, I want you to answer my prayer. And I want you to answer the way I want it answered. And sure, don't call me, I'll call you, right? <laughs> Seriously, that's a messed up way to treat another human being, let alone the creator of the universe. But how often do we do it? I mean, is that how you treat the God you say you believe in? Let me tell you something. If the God you say you believe in, you say, I believe in it, yeah. If God you say you, you believe in never tells you something that you don't like or never asks you to do something uh, that you don't want to do or never asks you to do something that's uncomfortable for you or, or asks you to make a level of commitment that you don't want to make but instead just kind of hangs around, makes no demands, agrees with you all the time, comes running when you call to do your bidding, that is a God of your imagination. That is a God you have made up in your head because the creator of the universe does not operate that way and it's unreasonable and borderline foolish to think that he would. Which is why Nathaniel's experience rings so true to me. You know, this encounter, this collision with Jesus just changes the direction of the guy's life completely. He moves from skepticism 
to total submission. He believes in Jesus as Messiah and Savior, and when he expresses his faith in him, it wasn't just a bunch of empty religious words. It was an all-out commitment to listen, to obey, to follow his rabbi, his God, his king. It was the only reasonable thing to do. And I get, I get that journey to, to a great degree because, as I said earlier, I was a skeptic and a, and a very cynical one at that. Uh, and I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you are as well. But here's the thing. You can't remain a skeptic forever. You can't. It's intellectually dishonest to try to. Because at some point, like Nathaniel, like some, like on some point like me, when it comes to Jesus, you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision one way or another. You know, do you believe or you don't believe? Do you submit or do you reject? Do you trust him or do you ignore him? Do you follow or do you refuse to do so? It's your decision to make. And I assure you of this, whatever that decision is, it will be revealed by the way you live your life. It will be. Let's pray. Father, so oftentimes we, um, we in our humanness struggle with doubt. Um, but I'm grateful you never condemn that. You, you don't see skepticism as, as a sin. But you encourage us to think. And uh, I think of Thomas, who, who doubted the resurrection, and when Jesus came to him, didn't come condemning, but said, here, touch, see, and believe. Thank you for not condemning us for our doubts and our questions. But if we're honest, we realize at some point or another, we have to come to a point of decision, to believe or not believe, to follow or to turn and go. And some of us have have decided to follow, but I wonder whether or not we've truly understood this relationship. And do we find ourselves relating to you in a way that's just inappropriate? Because if you are the God of all things, the Savior, creator of the universe, almighty, all righteous justice and your justice and all these things, then we would submit, I think, to you fully. So forgive us for our wavering. But I pray each of us this morning would be at a place where we're willing to believe and follow as best that we can. Jesus, the rabbi, our rabbi, our God and our king. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? So whenever I sing those words, I think to myself, is that true of me? I mean, see, those are words. Are, those words are easy to sing. I've decided to follow Jesus, but have I really? And does my life demonstrate that reality? That's a question we all need to ask ourselves. Um, because there's no fooling God. I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know about your walk with, with the Lord. I don't know whether you've chosen to do that or not for, for, for real. But I tell you what, two people do. Two beings do. You and God. So I hope you have.
But the reality is, you know, as we're going to go through the series, we're going to see these encounters happen. And sometimes they end well. We see Nathaniel come to faith. But other times we see people depart and leave Jesus behind. So um, we'll talk about that as well as, as, we, go, as we go on. So, uh, hey, I want to just mention... We have uh, some books available. If you'd like to do some supplemental reading and study in, in John as we're going through it, uh, N.T. Wright has a great book uh, on John. It's very accessible. Uh, I think it's like 22, uh, 26 quick studies. You can do it 15 minutes. It helps you in your devotional life. We're going to have those available. We may have already sold out. If we have, we're going to get more in for next week, okay? So I encourage you to read this. It's good stuff. It's very helpful. Also, uh, life groups went live today, so I want to encourage you to get into community with others, to study, to learn, to grow. We believe it happens uh, together. Our growth happens together and not, not alone, okay? If you have, also, if you have some questions about um, this, this faith in Jesus, this following Jesus thing, or maybe you're struggling in your, your, your walk with God, um, we have some prayer team members that will be up here uh, during the, at the end of the service. You can come and they're, they're willing to help you and pray with you, okay? Come back next week. We're going to take a look at Jesus' encounter with a, a wedding party. And some of you say, oh yeah, I know that story. You may know the story, but you may not know the significance of it because I think a lot of us get it wrong on what really happened and why it happened. Okay, so come back next week. We'll take a look, all right? Let me pray for us and we're done. And now, Lord, as we leave this place, as your people, the church, as we walk back out into our world where we spend the majority of our lives, may we live 24-7 for our rabbi, our God and King Jesus who has opened the way to heaven directly to you, our God, and has allowed your spirit to be poured out upon your people. And may we sense the inflowing of your spirit today. May we live our lives pointing people to Jesus. May your hand of grace and peace and power now rest on your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here, folks. We'll see you next week.